From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2012 Third Coast Festival broadcast. It's a different kind of love that we have. It's not a love of husband and wife. It's beyond friendship. You say boxing is a man's sport. That made me so, it made me so mad. Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. I watched for a long time, and I was fixing my camera and checking everything, and all of a sudden... The Third Coast Festival is an independent organization in Chicago, dedicated, heart, soul, and ears, to great radio. All year long, we gather the best stories from around the world and share them with you in a variety of ways, on the radio, in our podcast, at live listening events, and every other way we can think of. And then we host a worldwide competition and honor the very best audio of the year at our Third Coast Awards ceremony. Thank you, Third Coast, for supporting Creative Radio Production. This is really, really an honor, something that I've dreamed of, of winning a Third Coast Award all these years, and now I finally have one. It's great. In 2012, nine winners were selected by no fewer than 24 judges, experts in sound and story, from 275 entries. On this special broadcast, we bring you the winning stories and the producers behind this remarkable work. As a producer, you're sort of looking for the crack in the armor a little bit. You know, what are her fears? And and we didn't find any. (laughs) We start this hour with one of our honorable mentions. Last year marked the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, a day that shattered the city of New York and propelled the country into a decade of war. Despite the devastation of that day and the months that followed, a lot of us have been able to leave the events of 9-11 behind. We've moved forward. Others have not been as fortunate. As the 10th anniversary approached, WNYC reporter Marianne McCune wanted to find the people she had met on that day of chaos and terror in 2001 to see how their present was affected by their past. Here's one of the stories from the hour-long documentary, Living 9-11. Over the months and years following September 11th, some people did have the satisfaction of finding and thanking each other, like Chuck Diaz and Deborah Mite. Chuck was in a makeshift triage center in the city's health department when reporter Beth Fertig met him. How are you doing? Better than a lot of other people. His arm was in a sling made of a wooden ruler and a piece of masking tape. We heard the building starting to collapse. We ran. I got buried under the rubble. I don't know how I'm alive. It turned out that Chuck Diaz owed his life in part to a school safety officer who'd been called down to evacuate two schools. Don't even remember her name. We helped each other out. She had a flashlight, and we made our way through the darkness. Deborah Mite had been knocked down, too. But when she heard screams and moans in the darkness around her, she managed to pull a flashlight out of her tool belt and start shining it back and forth. I remember you telling me to follow the light. That's how they found each other. Can you see me? You say, yeah, I see the light. I'm coming. This is the two of them at a barbecue with their spouses and kids nearly a year later. And we hugged each other. They were sitting in Chuck's backyard, telling again how they pulled each other over burning hot beams. And I heard things falling around you. How they washed thick black ash out of their eyes and mouths with orange slush in a deserted Burger King. Jump over the counter. Then they realized the phone was ringing. The lady says, can I speak to so-and-so? I said, miss, do you realize what just happened? We almost died, and you're asking. I mean, I went off. She, she goes, saying, well, what are you doing, well, in, my are you doing in my store? <laughs> I said, your store? Wait, did you hear what I just said? We almost died. So I said, your store is no good. 
We're using your slush. <laughs> Psychologically, it you know, bothered us uh, why we lived and you know, a lot of other people didn't. We're connected now forever. They became what they called 9-11 buddies. They talked each other through nightmares and bad memories and just bad days. He said, hey, Deborah, how's it going? And I'd say, it's going pretty well. How's your day? Oh, my day was not going too good today. I had an awful day. Just don't know. I feel a little down. There was times that um, he would call me and I just start crying just because I hear his voice. I know people who said, oh, I rescued somebody, but I never saw them again. You know, that wasn't my story. Deborah has done well. She's now a senior supervising officer with the Human Resources Administration. She still lives with her husband and youngest son at the northern end of the Bronx. It's hot, so she serves up glasses of cold water. My name is Ahmed Mite. Ahmed just graduated high school. He was only eight when the towers collapsed. It's a bookmark in my life. That was the day I could have lost my mom. I remember her coming home and not being able really to talk. I'm glad she has Chuck in her life because how can you completely sympathize for someone when you haven't been through what they've been through? This is when we first met. This is his son, Chris, who loves pasta. That's his wife, Barbara. That's Chuck. That's me. It's a different kind of love that we have. It's not a love of husband and wife. It's beyond friendship. I guess you would say it's in the middle of both. He helped me and I helped him. We both helped each other as a survival kit. It's like it became a part of me. I'm getting a little emotional because I haven't spoken to Chuck in a couple of months. It's been more than a year. And um, I'm really worried about him. He's been going through some family issues, and I haven't been able to reach him. I've been leaving him messages and texting him, and he hasn't responded. So I'm a little concerned because we vowed that we would never leave each other. And it feels like a piece of me is missing. I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm fine. I have a beautiful church family. It's two blocks away. My pastor preached a sermon saying, um, who's holding your ladder? This is a church of relationship. Because she said, you always have to make sure you have strong people at the bottom of the ladder. I felt that Chuck was holding my ladder. No, 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 no. No. Back at home, Deborah's husband is trying to stop his parrot from sneaking out no. of his cage Go back. while he's got the door open to clean it. No, I'm, I'm Adam. Adam is Muslim. He's originally from West Africa. They've been married 22 years. They have three kids. And now that Deborah sleeps peacefully at night, he says when she does bring up September 11th, he worries she'll get caught up again. To me, it's just, just life goes on. He doesn't brush me off. 
he listens, but he'll say, you know, God is great, God is one, you know, get over it. He doesn't want me to fall back into emotional mode again. Like she says, Deborah is fine. She and her husband recently renewed their vows. She has her church, she has her family, many close friends, but she says none of them replaced Chuck. Sometimes I would just call his cell phone just to hear his voice. Hi, this is Chucky. I'm unavailable at the moment. Please leave a message. I'll get back to you when I can. Ciao. I'm not going to give up. I'm not. We did manage to reach Chuck on his cell phone after talking to Deborah. He said he's been having a hard time with his health. He's using three inhalers, taking medicine for GERD, and he's got the shakes. He says his doctors say it's all 9-11 related. A year back, he says he decided to keep Deborah at a distance. Just brings up too many bad memories. It's something I just can't deal with. During our phone call, he sent her this message. Deborah, I love you. You're always in my heart. You're always in my thoughts. And maybe I will see you on 9-11. That was an excerpt from Living 9-11 by Marianne McCune and Emily Botine, with editor Karen Frillman and executive producer Chris Bannon for WNYC Radio and PRX, the public radio exchange. Living 9-11 received a Third Coast honorable mention. To hear the full hour-long documentary, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Candid photography, by its very nature, is an invasion of privacy. If you don't know an image is being taken of you, you can hardly object to it. But artist Michelle Everson goes one step further in her work, pushing the medium into new ethical territory that doesn't always sit well with her subjects, her audience, or even at times, herself. Here's another of the Third Coast Honorable Mention winners. She sees your every move. I remember one night, I drive up to this one house and I had my camera on my seat, strapped in, focused on a particular window, and I was sitting in front of it, and I must have been there, you know, a while, maybe half hour. I watched for a long time, and I was fixing my camera and checking everything, and all of a sudden, a tap on my window. I jumped to the gentleman and he said, why are you photographing me in my house? And so I did say to him in a loud voice, I said, I'm a photographer and I'm photographing people in their homes at night. And I just started my car and drove away. My name is Michelle Everson. I began this photographic series in 1995. The name of the series is Night Surveillance Series. And what I am doing is photographing people at night in their homes. And I use the camera to create these intimate type of discoveries 
I, I'll talk, can, I'll look at one of the photographs and talk to you about it. Untitled number 88 is two people in the image, and it was the oddest thing. They were interacting, but his back was to her, and her face was to his back. They weren't talking, but they kept moving, and I was very curious as to what was going on. And finally, he had stepped back slightly into an area where I could see him, and she was popping his pimples. There was another image that, uh, this is, I was looking in on a neighbor, and um, she was binging, eating potato chips. Potato chip after potato chip was going into her mouth. They're almost, there's, there's, they're like these beautiful tableaus to me. They tell a story. They show people's lives. I kind of find my theater, you know, the actual window. And then the performance begins. I sat outside this home and watched this man slouch down in his chair. He wasn't really doing very much, but the window itself I thought was so beautiful and how it reframed the inside and his belongings. There's a fan, and then there's this beautiful family photograph. And I waited, I watched, and I watched, and I watched, and he fell asleep. This is what happens, all of a sudden I get very excited. It's like, oh my God, this is what they're doing. I've got to get this, you know? And then I shoot it and I take off as fast as I can because I want to get out of there. I just want to leave because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to be watching them. There are black and white images, approximately 40 by 48 inches in size. I need to have these images be approximate size of the windows and, and make you as uncomfortable as I am when you're looking at them because, you know, because you become complicit in, in looking at them. I watched her for a while. She was in her kitchen. I loved the shape of the shade and she finally turned around and came straight for the front of the window. And then she picked up this plate. It was a small, like a dessert plate. It was almost in slow motion for me as she put it up to her face and began to lick the plate. And when I go home after I've finished shooting, oh, I'm like, shut the doors, shut the windows, <laughs> close everything, you know, because I know who I am and I, I know what I'm doing, but I don't know who's out there watching me. And when I know that they're going to be seen in a gallery or on the internet or wherever they're going to be, I feel like th th this is an exposure that excites me, you know?
I think about it all the time, like, what if the shoe were on the other foot? If someone else were doing this to me, would I be mad? Yes. Would I feel upset? Probably. Was it my own fault? Yes. Did I have my window open? Yes. That's how I look at it. And I don't know exactly when I'm going to put it to rest. It could be tomorrow. But I've been watching someone's house lately that I think I really do want to make a photograph of. She Sees Your Every Move was produced by Jonathan Mitchell with editors Michelle Siegel and David Krasnow for Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson, a co-production of PRI, Public Radio International, and WNYC. In choosing this story for an honorable mention, our judges said, we find this piece to be atmospheric, creepy, and beautifully composed. We don't know if we like the main character or if we're supposed to. We're definitely not sure if we like what she's doing, but somehow we get a thrill from knowing she's not going to stop doing it. She Sees Your Every Move received an honorable mention in the 2012 Third Coast competition. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2012 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, you're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on our Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe. Coming up, insurance billing codes made fascinating. You heard me right. Stay tuned. They make a move and we have to make a counter move because they're trying not to pay us. We're trying to get paid. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. The best reporters strive to make even the driest of news stories engaging, full of sound, and maybe even a little, dare I say, fun. We honor that effort with our Best News Feature Award. This year, the award goes to a story that probes the heart of the procedural part of healthcare, billing codes. Our judges said that reporter Gregory Warner made something like the interior of a filing drawer seem fascinating. Here's the battle over billing codes. 
Think about all the stuff you do without charging for it. You toss out that receipt you could have submitted for reimbursement. You work late, but you don't charge overtime. But imagine you were doing hundreds of things for free worth tens of thousands of dollars a month. Then you'd probably say, Wow, I need to be charging for these things that I'm already doing. Larry Raybon is a urologist in Florence, South Carolina. And like every doctor, he charges by procedure. Taking out a tumor, there's a code for that. Using a special scope to do it, that's a different code. If the patient's obese, the surgery's harder. That's another code. If the surgery wasn't scheduled or there was a post-operative infection, you get the idea. There's a code for these things, and so that's huge amounts of funds that were just sitting on the table that were not being charged for. Two years ago, Larry Raybon decided to do things differently. He was going to find every code that he was missing and bill for that. To take on this task, he assembled a very loyal team, and here they are. Dr. Raybon is my husband and my boss. Geneva Raybon, head nurse, and her daughter. My name is Lauren. I'm in billing. And son-in-law. I'm the office manager. And another daughter. Yeah, my name is Rainy Raybon. Well, my business has developed into a family affair. And a family vacation for the Raybons means packing up the Suburban and driving down to Orlando, Florida. Not to Disney World, but to a hotel right across the street from Disney to attend the annual billing and coding conference known as Coding Con. How's everybody doing? You had fun last night? Barbara Kabuzi may not be the greatest at working a crowd. Anybody go to Disney? But when it comes to medical billing, she's a pit bull. Because nobody is going to pay you if you don't ask. Come on, bring chairs in. The lecture is packed because Kabuzi is demonstrating how to squeeze every completely legitimate dollar of reimbursement out of a procedure. So first we bill 24, then we bill 25. By using the right codes in the exact right order. If this sounds impossibly complicated... There are two things that have made this particularly complex. Thing number one, according to David Cutler, health economist at Harvard... We still pay for medicine the same old way. Procedure by procedure. So when there were very few things doctors could do, they just said, look, I did X or Y or Z, and they got paid for that. Now that there are hundreds of thousands, they have to write down each minuscule thing and get paid for that. So imagine you're zooming into a photo, down to the pixels. And then you see those pixels have pixels. That's what medical billing is like. Everything is itemized. There's a price tag on every test, each procedure and exam. There's a code for these things. Wait, wait, let's get one thing straight. Billing codes were invented to make things simpler. Doctor does something, there's a code for that. This is a way for insurance companies and doctors to agree on exactly what the doctor's doing and what should be paid for it. But that brings us to David Cutler's second reason that medical billing has become so complex. And it comes down to just two words. Shrinking reimbursements. All of a sudden, you've got doctors getting paid less for doing something. And they say, well, how am I going to make any money? The way I'm going to make money is by making the number of things that I've done increase. For instance, knee surgery and rehabilitation used to be all one procedure till hospitals figured out if they discharged the patient after surgery and sent them somewhere else for rehabilitation. That somewhere else might be a different floor of the same hospital. Now I've just added another thing I can bill for. One code becomes two. So that became the norm and still remains the norm. 
it became normal for insurance companies and Medicare to say, we're going to pay less for each service. And the specialists to respond by indicating more and more codes for exactly what you did. And that's the reason that the cost of care can keep going up, even as the price for any one procedure is held down. Uh, almost like playing chess. Uh, they make a move and we have to make a counter move because they're trying not to pay us. We're trying to get paid. And in this game, Larry Raybon has become a grand master. He's increased his revenue by 70 percent, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. I'm doing the same amount of work. He's just charging for every little thing he's doing. It's like a code war between doctors and insurance companies. And the hotter this war gets, the more it costs us. Our premiums and taxes pay for the coding gurus and soldiers on each side. There are now 2.2 people doing billing for every one doctor in America. It's a major part of the healthcare industry spent just dealing with that back and forth. And that back and forth, and you know this if you've ever been caught up in it, means reams of extra paperwork and referrals and authorizations and denials and appeals. And this costs an extra $360 billion a year. That's according to the Institute of Medicine. Which is to say, if we could just shave off one-seventh of the extra bureaucracy... That's well more than it would cost to bring insurance coverage to every single American who's now uninsured. So can we get rid of the codes? Well, some doctors and hospitals have already started signing up for a new program under the health care reform law that would pay doctors by lump sum instead of per procedure. But other doctors don't want to give up their independence. Larry Raybon and his family, they've gotten used to playing the game. And if every doctor played as well as they do, then our deficit would really be in trouble. The Battle Over Billing Codes was produced by Gregory Warner with editor Betsy Streisand for Marketplace. It won the 2012 Third Coast Best News Feature Award. Now, something a little different. Each year, Third Coast brings in experts in sound and story to judge this competition. They choose eight award winners. But there's one more award we give, one that those judges have nothing to do with. For this award, the festival staff gets together and chooses a story that catches our ears and often pushes the medium to new levels. This year, the award goes to a producer who is known for blending fact, fiction, fate, and fixation in her stories. Producer Natalie Kestitcher claims to be indecisive, paralyzingly so, or was, until she was saved by a simple item that can be found in your average junk drawer. Uh, mental dowsing is um, asking a mental question and obtaining a response, either via the pendulum movement or rod movement. There's another tool you can use, which is called a bobber. It's a little piece of... Uh, a flexible wire with a weight at the end and it will jump up and down until um, it will turn either clockwise or anti-clockwise in response to the question. Francois Capmay, Secretary of the Dalses Society of New South Wales. To make excuses and do nothing is to accept the world as it is. Making a decision and taking action is to shape the world into what it can be. 
Michael Rolls, online philosopher. My grandmother used to say that everybody's crazy in their own way. My craziness has always been around decision-making. Perhaps I shouldn't say always, as I don't remember being indecisive as a child, but maybe that was because there weren't too many options in those days. As part of dowsing, part of it is um, uh, the ability, f well, the recognition that there's a part of us which exists and is not often recognized. So that part has access to more information than we do. So the pendulum is a tool to make use of that because your body can actually affect the pendulum. Uh, well, you can, I can move the pendulum, I can spin it like this, but what I can also do in, is ask that unconscious part of me something and ask it to respond in a certain way. Not only does my indecisiveness make me feel crazy, but as I see it, it's an impediment. It makes life more expensive. I've never been able to reap the benefits of the early bird special. If I have to travel, it's at a premium because I'm always booking things at the very last minute. It slows me down. It makes me wishy-washy. It threatens relationships. It makes commitment an impossible task. My indecisiveness is a source of shame. I'm tall, I'm strong, I'm educated. Shouldn't I know what I want? If I'm to be a useful member of this society, shouldn't I be assertive and decisive? Decisiveness is a characteristic of high-performing men and women. Almost any decision is better than no decision at all. Brian Tracy, self-help author. Not everybody puts decisiveness on a pedestal as I do. I once had a friend named Robert who procrastinated with pride, refusing to be bullied into a premature decision, appearing to even relish the protracted nature of his own way of thinking things through. The only decision is no decision. Robert Clarnet. Unlike Robert, I have viewed my indecisiveness as something to try and conceal. Some may feel that indecision implies choice and that choice implies privilege, wealth and entitlement. But please bear in mind that indecision can be debilitating. I remember once watching a woman in a fruit shop with a green apple in one hand and a red one in the other. Her eyes moved between the two for what seemed like ages. She finally put the apples back on their stands and burst into tears, walking out of the shop empty-handed. I don't know what her story was or what those apples meant to her, but I remember watching her and recognising something deep and painful within myself. The risk of a wrong decision is preferable to the terror of indecision. Maimonides, medieval rabbi, physician and scholar. So why am I telling you all this if I see my indecision as something to be hidden? Because I think I may have found a solution. Low cost, no drugs. 
Meet string. String is a piece of string with a small lead weight tied to the end of it. Blue and Greek in origin, like the woman who gave it to me. She was a travel agent and was witness to one of my attacks of indecision as I was sitting in her office one day, staring hard at a ferry timetable, unable to decide whether to go on the 11.30 or 12.30 ferry. She watched me for a while with a look that suggested that she understood I was going through something more complicated than making a simple decision about boats. But I could see that she was also suffering. There were other customers to serve and I was holding everybody up. She handed me string and said, Indecision is a curse, especially in my profession, but I have found a solution. This pendulum will move in one direction to give you a yes answer and another direction to give you a no answer. You can ask it anything, but first you must establish which way the pendulum will move. So go ahead, take it between your thumb and forefinger, let the weight dangle and then ask it to show you how it will guide you. Show me yes. String swung sideways. Show me no. String swung back and forth. The Greek travel agent told me that String's answer would reflect what my subconscious already knew. Should I take the 11.30 ferry? String swung sideways. Yes. Should I take the 12.30 ferry? No. I booked my ticket in record time. The travel agent looked pleased with herself. The remainder of my travels went far more smoothly than normal. I would consult String each morning with every bit of doubt that I had, and in just moments, String would offer a solution. For the first time in my adult life, I strode the strides of she who knows where she's going. String had become my most valued companion. That was an excerpt from String, this year's Director's Choice Award winner, produced by Natalie Kesticher, with sound engineering by Timothy Nicastri for ABC Radio National's 360 Documentaries. A lot more develops in the relationship between Natalie and String, including love, betrayal, and, well, I won't spoil it. Go take a listen at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up, the Third Coast Gold Award winner. And trust me, it packs a big punch. Stay with us. Today is 30 days before the Olympic trials. (laughs) Wow.
Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Gwen Maxi. Boxing out of the red corner, the 16-year-old sensation. Let's give it up for Clarissa Shields. And now we've come to our highest honor, the 2012 Third Coast Gold Award. At the 2012 Olympics in London, for the first time in history, women stepped into the boxing ring. One of them was Clarissa Shields from Flint, Michigan. To get to that ring, though, first she had to qualify for one of three spots on the inaugural team, which required years of blood and sweat, but make no mistake about it, definitely no tears. Here's the 2012 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Gold Award winner, Teen Contender. All right. Well, we're going to start with my name is Clarissa Shields. I'm 16. I've been boxing since I was 11. My record is 19-0. Yeah, undefeated. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce Bob I have this dream. I'm in England, London, and it's the finals in the Olympics. I, I can hear the announcer. I mean, they're going to say it. Like, and the first woman Olympian at 165 pounds is Clarissa Shields. Clarissa Shields! And in my dream, I'm just looking around and I'm just thinking to myself, like, how did I get here? Hello, testing, testing. Good morning, this is Clarissa again. That's my alarm. Right now, I'm sleeping on the couch at my aunt's house. I just moved in probably about a month and a half ago. She has three kids, and me and my little brother live with her, so it's like she got five kids, really. We all live in the same house. Hold on a second, my little cousin crying. Okay. Tanaysia, where's Tanaysia at? Why do I live with my aunt? Well, my mom, you know, she, um has her own problems, you know, more bad days than good days. It just wasn't helping me with my boxing. So I just, I just had to move out. Crack my neck, wash my face real fast, then head out. Peanut, later. Sound of footsteps. It's snowing. Out here look all pretty. Like white Christmas trees. Today is 30 days before the Olympic trials. <laughs> wow. Today's a new day, and there is no sunshine. I think it's the time in everybody's life where no matter if you got good parents or bad parents, it's your time to decide if you want to go left or if you want to go right. Before boxing, my goal was to have 10 kids before I was 26. I wanted to have a big old family, a lot of kids. I thought I would have been a good mom, too. But no, I ain't thinking about that right now, though. <laughs> yeah. What's up, champ? We're at my dad's house, and we're about to watch the DVD of me boxing. I think I got about eight now on DVD. And um, he gonna talk trash. Watch out, you gonna come out now. <laughs> oh! Okay. <laughs> See, with no jab, no action. You see how she was wasting punches? Yeah, she wasted energy. For those who didn't know, my dad was a boxer. 
They said he was real good. They used to call him Cannonball. I had a career as a, an underground fighter. We'd go from state to state here and there fighting guys. I fought in barns, closed army bunkers. You understand what I'm saying? You know, we was dirty fighters, you know? You fought until one of y'all couldn't stand no more. You it know what I'm like? It's illegal. It's yeah. totally illegal. You know, uh, I one time could have turned pro, I think, but I started winding up in and out of prison. And when I came home from prison, that was the first time I seen you since you was two. Yeah, you had braids in your hair? Mm -hmm. That's what I remember. Yes. My dad, he went to prison when I was two and got out when I was nine. You remember the first conversation we ever had about boxing? Yeah. One day we was riding in my van, I think it was, and we was kicking it. Mm -hmm. I told a story about the fact that I used to fight and that none of my children or no one else in my family had picked up the torch and became a boxer. So I was like, okay, maybe you can kind of like live your dream through me a little bit. And about a week later, you know, you asked me, could you box? And my answer was, hell no. Do you exactly. remember the exact words that, that you said? You said yeah. boxing is a man's sport. That made me so, it made me so mad. And you should have took it that way. That was a chauvinist <laughs> statement that a girl can't do it. So, you know, you, you was right. And I've been at it ever since. I'm still proving people wrong. Truth be known. I just think, little mama, you are awesome. Hello, this is Clarissa again. I'm at Burston Fieldhouse right now. And it is 17 days before the Olympic trials. You ready, Russ? Hurry up. Okay, hold on. Coach, can you explain to me what's going on right now, uh, Mr. Jason Crutchfield? Coach Crutchfield. You're going to spar with them two guys right there. Come on, y'all, get ready. Ready. Bye. Good shot. Let him go. Right there, Rim. There you go. Let it go right there. To me, the gym was a beautiful place. You know, as soon as I walk in there, it's like all stress just, just, it just leaves you. If they would let me live there, I would. I mean, we got a bathroom upstairs for showers. I bring my clothes, pillow, a nice size cover. Probably make me a pallet in the ring. Cut the light off and just go to sleep. That's a good shot there. Come on, ref. Let's go. Stay into it. Sloppy, sloppy. Don't get sloppy. Keep yourself together. There you go. Well, I can remember her dad brought her down to the gym. She was 11 years old. Come on. 11. And he told, he told me, he asked me, he said, hey, um, my daughter won a box. A week after that, I noticed how she was punching, aggressive and fast, and her fire, her hunger. Man. A coach always wants a champion. That's why we coach. We want to help the kids and stuff like that, but the first thing is to have a champion. Now look, I think I got one. <laughs> I just never thought it was going to be a girl. All right, come here, Russ. You got to do 15 minutes of ice, 15 minutes of heat. You got me? Hello. <laughs> hey. Russ, turn that phone off. I'm playing back, okay? Alright. Who is this boy? Uh. What What did you do? I mean. Ain't no big deal. Dang. 
So you'd rather talk to the boy than be at the Olympic trials? Come on now. What kind of question is that? You know how close this thing is? Mm-hmm. Real close. You don't need anything that's going to take your attention somewhere else. Nothing. Psst. Whatever. I like boys. Can't help it. That's cool, but just keep it platonic. What do you mean? Nothing but a friendship. If you like him, drop him. Me? Ooh, nothing. Russell, you're up against a lot. When we go to these Olympic trials, you're going to be up against grown women that are stronger than you. They ain't got to go to school. They ain't got homework. All they got to do is box. These people are hungry. Mm, it makes sense. You gifted. You're real good. But you're not ready yet. We're almost there. We're not there yet. Well, I'm strong-minded. I'm not going to let nobody feed me off in the wrong direction. Ressa, look at me. Just stay focused. You got all your life for boys. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing right here. Right now we are at Antioch Missionary Baptist Church. I came to talk to them about supporting me getting to Spokane, Washington for the Women Olympic Trials. And uh, every little bit helps. This young lady here got an opportunity to go to the Olympics. Ain't you undefeated? Yes. She's undefeated. Hi, I'd just like to introduce myself. I'm a female boxer at Bryson Fieldhouse. I've been boxing since I was 11 years old. I've been training very hard, and, and I do believe in God. I'm just asking that if you want to give anything, it, it'll all help. That's all. Well, congratulations, sweetheart. Thank you. There's so many young girls out there, they fight, but they're not fighting for the right reasons. You know what I'm saying? We really do need people like you in this city. Yes, yeah. sir. Come and go to the land. She won this, that would really do a lot for our city. Flint, the murder capital, the highest unemployment rate. Everybody looking at Flint like Flint's just a ghost town, like we don't even exist, you know. And we can pull that off, oh my God. This would show them that through all that, something good came out of Flint. Clarissa Shields. And the thing about it is, I think we're going to do it. I feel like it's meant for us. Hello? So what's going on with you? Doing all right. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. My dad was going to come to the Olympic Childs in Spokane. Dad, where you at right now? Huh? Where you at right now? Uh, down at the county. Now look. He called me. And uh, he had been arrested. The back tail light of the car was messed up and he got pulled over and he had warrants out for his arrest. I don't know what he did to get the warrants. So I just wanted to call you and tell you I love you. Oh, okay. And good luck. And make sure of all the things you do, make sure you stay your friends. Yeah. All the time. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Why are you always waiting for me to hang up for? I want to be heard your voice, 
All right, one, two, three. When I say three, go. Hang up. Okay. All right, ready? One, two, three, go. Everything in life that I've ever wanted, I, I've always got it. I mean, besides money or besides, yeah, besides money stuff, but out of everything I've ever wanted, I've always got it. But at the end of the day, I'm just thinking to myself, I don't know what's going to happen. It's about to go down. So, good night. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the U.S. Olympic Team Trials for Women's Boxing. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, boxing fans. Thanks for joining us on this historic occasion. We are set to begin the action. Boxing out of the red corner, the 16-year-old sensation. Let's give it up for Clarissa Shield. When I step in the ring, it's like I step into a whole different dimension. It's like everything outside of the ring is black. Can't nobody else get in there and help you. Coach, he can't get in the ring and fight with you. You don't have your dad, mom. When we get in the ring, you don't have nobody but yourself. Let's get it on, round number one. That's it, that's it right here, let's go. Everything there, go get on it. There you go, beautiful jab. That jab looking good. Fast start for Clarissa Shields, lots of speed on that jab. Come on, Russ, keep your hands up, hands up. Come on, baby. Larissa Shields lands her right hand to the body, but Tika Hemingway trying to muscle Clarissa backward now. You're getting points, Russ. See, I'll point you, Russ. Russ, do you hear me? Let's go. Fight, Russ. Clarissa Shields looking back to the corner, trying to keep her opponent off of her. Go to her, Russ. Go. Go to her. I mean, man, I don't want her to lose no fight. But being a fighter is all about coming back. That's when you find out the true character of a person. And if she can come back, well, then we'll know. And that's the end of the round. Come on, show me something. Look alive. No, you ain't tired. Don't you never say you I said I got it. Come on. So you heard Clarissa Shields, coach, telling her to look alive. And Clarissa answers with, I've got it. Final round, round number four. Come on, Rex, last round. Everything on the line, right now. Big right hand and a hook from Clarissa Shields. There you go, work in there, work in there. Now she's bringing uppercuts right up the center. Clarissa boxes her way off the ropes. Nice, that's how you break it off. Woo! Clarissa Shields very comfortable now. She's throwing heavy leather. Ah, there you go, there you go. We're coming nice. into the final seconds. Clarissa Shields waiting for Tika to come forward. That's the Let's end of the round. For an outstanding bout. Ladies and gentlemen, I have your winner with a score of 23 to 18. Boxing out of the red corner, Clarissa Shields! Clarissa Shields is your United States of America team champion! We done.
You hear me? We've done it. Okay. Good. <laughs> wow. My name is Claressa Shields. I always knew I was going to be something. I just didn't know what. Teen Contender was produced by Joe Richmond, Sue J. Johnson, and Samara Freemark for Radio Diaries and NPR's All Things Considered. It won the 2012 Third Coast Gold Award. Clarissa's story was, of course, recorded before the 2012 Summer Olympics in London, but in case you hadn't heard the news... I sat down with Clarissa and producers Sue J. Johnson and Joe Richmond, and I started out by asking Sue, who's an amateur boxer herself, how she got interested in boxing and how she found Clarissa. It started because I met this woman who was a trainer and an artist, and she kept calling me and telling me to come down to the gym. And um, it wasn't anything I'd ever thought about before or even could have imagined that I would be interested in doing. But I went down to the gym, and it became it became like my church. It just brought up so much for me, and I was learning so much about myself and really practicing confronting fear is what it was about for me. And then I started getting interested in why other women were doing it, and I was photographing the other women in the gym, and then I started going to tournaments. And then in my very last tournament, I saw Clarissa Shields fight, and she just blew my mind. She was so fast and furious and she stopped her opponents. I had never seen anyone fight like that, man or woman. So Clarissa, what did you think when Sue approached you about doing this? What did you think of her? Um, well, at first I was thinking that, you know, it was just this little this little white lady who wanted to follow me around. And then uh, she called me all the time, like, have you been recording? Have you been doing this? What have you been thinking about? And, um, and I always tell her, and she said, well, just tell the, well, just tell the mic that, and then um, we'll be good. So um, it's it, it just been a great experience. Sue was a great person. She's like, um, she's so close now that when she walks around with, with me and Flint with, uh, with her camera, and she's climbing on tables, and she's taking pictures, everyone like, yeah, that's Sue. And I, and I call her my cousin. <laughs> I have learned so much from Clarissa in this one short, amazing year. I think the biggest thing is that just learning from Clarissa that you don't succeed in spite of your life, but you succeed because of it. And more than anyone I've ever seen, Clarissa is able to leverage everything that's happened in her life, good and bad, for strength. And she uses that strength in the ring and she uses that strength in her life. So what was the biggest challenge in this project from any of your points of view? I remember one, one thing, you know, this, this story was leading up to her trying to make the Olympic team. And we really wanted to, Clarissa to talk a lot about, you know, her doubts and her fears and will she make the team and what if she loses? And the thing was, she doesn't think like that. <laughs> There's, there was no moment, Clarissa, where you were like, had any doubt that you were gonna win you just knew it and so you know as as a producer you're sort of looking for the crack in the armor a little bit and you know well, you know what are her fears and you know and self-doubt 
and we didn't find any. <laughs> Producers Joe Richmond and Sue J. Johnson with Olympic gold medalist Clarissa Shields. Check out a longer version of our interview at thirdcoastfestival.org. We were lucky enough to have Clarissa join us for our award ceremony, and she had a little surprise for us. I'm going to show all you radio people how to jazz. <laughs> this, is not, this is not just any jab. This is the Clarissa of the Olympic gold medalist jab. <laughs> so, so this is how you do it. This is how you do it. To see the video of a room of radio producers trying to throw a jab with Clarissa Shields, check out our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Sound is one of our first senses to come alive, and usually the last to leave us. In between, our lives are filled with a bounty of amazing sounds, should you stop to pay attention, if you pause to listen. Sound of footsteps. Why y'all wait for me to hang up for? I want to let your voice last. All right, one, two, three. When I say three, go. Hang up. Okay. All right, ready? One, two, three, go. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2012 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Thanks for joining us. The program was produced by Katie Mingle with assistance from Danielle Ezel and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Julie Shapiro. Best of the Best is supported by Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping organizations everywhere communicate in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. Third Coast is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency, and was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. Best of the Best is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, at prx.org.